Before we get started today, I want to give a shout out to Mike Kubik, a fellow uh, Notre Dame student who has provided some excellent uh, music to get us going. Hello, today is April 17th, 2017, and you are listening to episode four of A Pint of Law. I am Matthew Curtis, your host from the University of Notre Dame, bringing you today's most important legal issues in a way that you can explain to your bartender. My guest today is Professor Greg Riley, Assistant Professor at the Chicago-Kent College of Law. We're going to talk about his forthcoming publication in the Boston University Law Review, Decoupling Patent Law. Professor graduated summa cum laude from Georgetown University and magna cum laude from Harvard Law School and clerked for Judge Timothy Dyke of the Federal Circuit. Professor Riley's research and teaching interest are at the intersection of intellectual property and federal court procedure, with a particular focus on how institutions and decision makers resolve patent disputes. His projects have focused on the fit between patent doctrines and the relevant decision makers, patent claim construction, patent litigation reform, and the efforts of the Eastern District of Texas to attract patent cases. Prior to joining Kent, Professor Riley held a tenure-track appointment at the California Western School of Law and was a teaching fellow and lecturer at the University of Chicago Law School. Professor Riley spent five years as an associate at Morrison and Forster, where he had extensive appellate and district court experience litigating patent, trademark, complex commercial, and products liability cases. Professor is an avid Georgetown basketball fan, and I, for one, am excited that they did not steal Mike Bray. Professor, thank you so much for joining me. Um, the patent system is somewhat unique in the law in that there is a system for granting rights and several for adjudicating them. Let's start with granting patent rights. How does this happen? Yeah, so I mean, I think to some extent there's other areas of law where you see this kind of distinction between granting and adjudicating or, uh, or uh, multiple uh, areas like that. I think patent law is unique in terms of the volume of uh, cases where this happens. Every single patent is granted by the patent office. And what you do is you apply for an application and there's a patent examiner, uh, someone in the patent office who reviews that application and they say whether or not uh, you're entitled to your uh, to exclusive rights for your invention. And, you know, you kind of go back and forth with them and you say, well, I want this scope of rights. And they say you're only entitled to this scope of rights under the statute. And so you might amend uh, your patent application to claim less than you originally did. And uh, through that back and forth process, eventually, at the end of it, you come out with uh, a patent with certain rights uh, defined in the patent claims as to uh, what you can exclude others from, uh, from doing. Okay. Um, and how long does that typically take? Uh, it can take, I mean, it varies depending on the complexity of the technology, um, uh, just the attentiveness of the parties. Uh, normally, uh, one year would be relatively short prosecution. Somewhere in the one to three year uh, period is normally what it takes, uh, essentially depending on how much of a back and forth there are. If you come in with kind of na a narrow claim to patent rights in, in, where something uh, is pretty clearly new, different from what existed before, you can get in and out of the patent office in less than a year. But most patent applicants are trying to claim as broadly as they can to get as broad of rights as they can. And so that leads to a back and forth process that can take, you know, two, three years. Okay. And just as a basic overview, what are the different forms of adjudication for patent rights? Yeah. So, I mean, if we think of adjudicating as kind of applying legal standards to specific facts, even 
the granting of uh, patents originally in the patent office uh, would be a form of adjudication. So I, I think the first is merely the fact that in order to get a patent, you have to go through a process of application and approval from the patent office. But then once the patent is uh, issued uh, and you have enforceable patent rights, there's still multiple places where those patent rights are subject to uh, being adjudicated. And the most common uh, area, and traditionally the, the uh, uh, main area, has been in district court litigation. So you get a patent from the, from the government, that gives you the right to exclude, but if you want to enforce that right, you have to bring a lawsuit against someone you think is using a uh, product or doing something within the scope of your patent rights. And that uh, uh, lawsuit's brought in federal district court, in, in our normal federal district courts. So that's kind of the primary place for adjudicating issued patents. Since 1982, and even more so since the American Vince Act of 2011, there's been a second uh, forum, and that is that uh, there's procedures in the patent office by which you can go in and basically say, look, uh, if, if you're someone who's accused of infringement, the, the patent office never should have issued this. They made a mistake, and so this patent should be canceled. And there's uh, several procedures, actually, that vary in scope and uh, the issues they cover for by which people can go in and ask the patent office to cancel patent rights that were previously issued. And then beyond that, there's a, uh, another uh, major place for adjudicating patent rights, at least in cases where that involve uh, cross-border uh, uh, trade. And that's the International Trade Commission. And what the International Trade Commission can do is can uh, it can prohibit the importing of products that infringe a patent uh, from ever coming into the United States. All of these different forums are adjudicating slightly different issues at times or have slightly different authority, but often they're uh, resolving the exact same issues under the patent statute as to um, uh, the conditions for getting a patent and maintaining that patent. Okay, great. That was a wonderful overview. Um, a big difference you cite in your paper is the rate of patents granted by the patent office and the rate upheld through adjudication. Um, why is this? Uh, so I think um, that it's a result of several factors. Uh, so one, one factor here is uh, simply that the patent office has limited time and energy to devote to any one patent application. The patent office gets hundreds of thousands of applications a year. And uh, on average, each patent examiner, the person in the patent office who investigates uh, uh, the applications, they can only spend about 18 hours per application. Whereas in federal court, when you're in uh, uh, litigation, uh, we know kind of from the federal court's own um, way of measuring the, the complexity of cases, that judges are pay spending 35 plus hours per patent, and then uh, the parties are doing a lot more work too. So I think that's part of it. I think part of it is that um, in and the patent office, when you're applying for a patent, there uh, there's three options. One is they can grant you the patent you ask for. They can deny you any patent protection whatsoever. And then the third is you, owe, you have a chance to amend the uh, claims that you're seeking, the scope of the rights you're seeking. So you can come out with a patent just for less than what you initially asked for. Whereas there's no right to amend your claims once you're in litigation. So it's a, a either or, either this is valid or it's not, uh, or it's invalid. And then the last reason is uh, selection effects. That is, 
only a small percentage of patents are, are ever litigated, ever go into court. Uh, and I think that those patents are likely to be the ones that are closer. The, the issue of, of validity is closer. Those, the patents that are clearly valid, that were the patent office clearly correctly granted, uh, people are likely to take a license to. They're, they're not going to uh, or, or settle quickly. They're not going to contest it in adjudication. Uh, and the, the cases are never even going to get filed. Or if they do get filed, they're going to be resolved and settled without ever having an actual ruling on uh, the merits. So I think what you're seeing in litigation is you're seeing the, uh, the closest or the most um, questionable uh, patent rights being litigated, whereas the clear ones never need to be litigated because they're licensed without dispute. Okay, so your paper is about decoupled patent law, but let's start with the current norm. What is coupled patent law? So the idea of coupled patent law, which is just kind of a baseline assumption in the patent system, no one really talks about much, we just assume it has to be the case, is that when we're applying legal standards uh, in these different areas, in these different forums, uh, whether it be the patent office in initially reviewing a patent application or the district courts in uh, adjudicating an infringement action, they're applying the exact same test, they're applying the exact same legal rules, standards, exact, uh, whatever that we, we ask um, everyone to be essentially doing the same inquiry. When the patent office has to decide whether the invention is obvious or not, whether it's too trivial to get a patent, it applies the exact same test that the district courts do when later in litigation they're asked, oh, well, was this patent uh, significant enough to warrant a patent, uh, patent protection or was it too trivial? Okay, yeah, so there's logical consistency there, but that doesn't necessarily mean there's not any problems. So you cite that in several areas, including claim construction, indefiniteness, inequitable conduct, and best mode, the courts have departed from coupled patent law. Uh, why has this happened? Um, and has it been more or less an organic answer to a complicated question, or as part of a systematic theory of patent law? Uh, no, I think, I, I think the, there's no unifying explanation for why uh, courts have departed from this kind of norm of, of coupled patent law, this assumption that we apply the same uh, uh, tests in these various uh, venues. Um, I think they've, they've all kind of resulted from slightly different explanations. Claim The different claim construction standards uh, largely has to do with the ability to amend in uh, uh, patent prosecution when, when obtaining a patent uh, versus not being able to amend in litigation. Uh, the inequitable conduct standard, the differences there um, uh, where people have uh, uh, withheld information from the patent office, that was largely a result with the, of the federal circuit just disliking um, the current uh, state of inequitable conduct law, and it made a change within uh, uh, its kind of purview of authority. Um, best mode, where Congress had said best mode is, a mean, is something you have to satisfy to get the patent, but not in uh, subsequent litigation. It's not actually even clear that just happened in uh, the American Vince Act in 2011. It's not exactly clear why Congress did it. It seems as best we can tell it's some sort of response to uh, lobbying efforts. Okay. So uh, I don't think there is really kind of a single explanation. Okay, and you note that the Supreme Court has reigned in the federal circuit from decoupling patent law. You cite that the assumed reasons for doing so has been certainty and predictability and quality of patent law and error cost and decision cost. Um, let's start with the first. Does coupled patent law increase certainty and predictability? Um, and what are some examples of when it does? 
Yeah, so I mean, I, I, so it's, to be clear, I don't think it's necessarily just the Supreme Court that's reined in uh, these kind of uh, uh, decoupled areas we've seen. I think it's a mix of factors, um, uh, and it's largely just kind of a baseline assumption that we need everything to be the same throughout the patent system. Uh, but in terms of certainty and predictability, uh, I think that on paper, it makes sense that we would have the exact same kind of legal tests for obtaining a patent as for keeping it in later litigation. Because that means that uh, actors within the system, uh, they can just make a single determination. Am I likely to be able to get this patent? And am I able, likely to be able to retain it? Is the court gonna strike it down as obvious? Well, that's the same uh, question as is the patent office gonna allow me to get this uh, uh, patent in the first place? So I think on paper, uh, having a single set of rules that cross all these adjudicative forums, all these different places of the patent system where we have to apply patent law, it makes sense. It's easier to comply with one standard, one test, than it would be uh, with uh, several. I think the problem comes more in when, when uh, we actually come to applying these tests, that not all tests are well suited for these very different forums. Does the quality of the patent law increase? And if so, does this lead to lower error costs? So I, I doubt that it uh, does lead, lead to lower error costs. I mean, the reason that uh, uh, coupled patent law would reduce errors in the patent system is the idea that with more experience, you get more expertise, right? So the more that uh, the courts have to struggle with patent law, they'll be better at crafting patent law uh, uh, doctrines that meet the substantive standards or, or sorry, uh, 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 advance the substantive goals of patent law, uh, and they'll be, uh, there'll be a greater body of precedent that more precisely applies to various situations. So in that way, if we have just a single body of uh, legal rules, tests, et cetera, that apply across all these different places where patent law has to be applied in the patent system, you're gonna get more experience. And with more experience, we think uh, lower error. Problem is, is that these forums look very different. The the decision makers are different, the procedures are different, uh, and there's no real reason to think that a single body of uh, legal rules can be reliably applied in each of these various settings. Uh, that that even with very different decision makers between the patent office and the courts, that a single uh, test is going to be just as good. Uh, that the decision makers are going to be just as good at applying the same test. Okay, great. And you cite that there are both theoretical and actual problems with patent law. What is the leading theoretical issue? I think that the uh, leading theoretical issue with uh, uh, coupled patent law is the idea that um, we normally think that uh, law is only as effective as the decision makers who have to uh, apply it. That is, that um, uh, law can be perfect on the books. Law can, can make total sense as it's written in the statute. But if it can't be reliably applied by the relevant decision makers in the relevant context, then we're gonna get uh, uh, poor results. No matter if a, even if a perfect decision maker, even if a body of law would lead a perfect decision maker to reach you know, ideal results, uh, if, if the actual decision makers aren't uh, capable of applying that uh, law reliably, we're going to get bad results when, at the end of the day. 
And so kind of the idea that we have behind it uh, is we often think, well, law needs to be well suited to the decision makers who are, are applying it and within their capability so that they can reliably apply it. And in the case of uh, patent law, the patent system, we have, again, very different decision makers using various, very different procedures across these uh, uh, various forums. Okay, and what are the, some of the on-the-ground errors that you're seeing that result from structural elements of the patent system? Yeah, so I mean, I think um, we see a lot of complaint in patent law these days about uh, the quality of decision-making, that the patent office is uh, issuing uh, too many, uh, quote-unquote, bad patents or weak patents, that, uh, the, the court, that uh, litigation in the courts is too expensive and isn't doing a, a good enough job of weeding out these pat bad patents. Um, we see a lot of complaints about the kind of state of patent law, uh, where people criticize the Supreme Court's approach to patent law for adopting um, uh, kind of broad, open-ended standards that consider a lot of evidence, but don't really lead to predictability. And then, but then they also crit criticize the Federal Circuit's approach to patent law for being kind of too monotonous, too robotic, uh, not, not leaving a lot of room for kind of flex in the joints. And I think part of what's going on here is that it's really, really hard to design a single set of rules, tests, you know, doctrine, whatever you want to call it, that can be applied across the entire patent system, that can be applied well by the patent office, uh, by the patent examiners in the patent office, that can be applied well by the district courts uh, uh, in litigation. It's just really, really hard to design uh, one set of rules that works great across the system. Uh, and I think part of the, the, the of what we're seeing in this debate, which really hasn't been recognized, is the difficulty of uh, the problem for whoever's in charge of designing patent law, whether it's the Supreme Court, whether it's Congress, whether uh, it's the Federal Circuit. It's just really hard to do it at a macro level that will work well across these settings. Okay, so now that we've got our background in coupled patent law, let's talk about decoupled patent law. You say that there are five principles of decoupled patent law. One, legalistic versus technical determinations. Two, policy influence decisions. Three, determinations as a time of invention of filing. Four, simplicity versus nuance. And five, rules versus standards. So let's talk about the first, legalistic versus technical. What is the key to this distinction? So I think the key to this distinction is that uh, is to recognize how very different the decision makers are between those people who are in the patent office reviewing the initial patent applications and the people who are uh, resolving patent issues in the district courts. Uh, patent examiners who work in the patent office and review patent applications, they're scientifically trained or technically trained. Um, all have undergraduate degrees in whatever their uh, technical area is within the patent office. Many have advanced degrees, some have work experience, but they all have knowledge of the uh, technical or scientific principles underlying the invention. But on the other hand, they're not legally trained. Uh, they're very, they can be lawyers, but rarely are. Um, and they get kind of a crash course of uh, two weeks of legal training, uh, plus a little bit here and there on the job. And then the converse is true in, uh, in, in litigation, in the courts. Judges are, are extensively legally trained, some of the best legal minds in the country, but they're not, very few federal judges are scientifically trained, have any kind of technical, a STEM background, 
or any uh, work experience in a technical field. And so you get this real mismatch uh, in the decision makers. And so what the paper suggests is when we're designing kind of patent law doctrines, you can design them on a, a, a scale between how uh, intensively they require engagement with the technical uh, principles of the invention and how more legalistic they are uh, uh, and don't require as deep or as uh, open-ended engagement with the technical inquiry. You can't, invite, you can't avoid scientific and technical issues in patent cases, but the way you craft your doctrine can either require more or less um, uh, kind of engagement with the scientific or technical details. And I'd suggest that more engagement is better uh, for doctrines uh, governing patentability, getting a patent in the patent office, and less engagement is better uh, for doctrines um, uh, involving uh, evaluating patents once they're in litigation after they've been issued. Okay, next, policy influence decisions. What's this all about? So uh, the patent law's underlying goal is to encourage uh, innovation. And um, to, to the extent we craft our doctrines, we can craft them in a way that's more open-ended and therefore requires a more direct engagement with this underlying policy goal of, uh, of promoting innovation. Or we can make them more rule-like where we're not asking the decision maker to engage with the underlying policy question of, will this help promote innovation or will it not help promote innovation? Instead, we kind of give a rough and ready rule that we think at some sort of macro level uh, on the whole will advance the goal of um, promoting innovation. And what I'd suggest is that um, in litigation, in the courts, it's better to just, uh, instead of asking the court to more directly evaluate the question of how does this patent right, how do these patent rights relate to the underlying goal of promoting innovation, we'd be much better off just making kind of um, uh, uh, wholesale judgments that in this type of case, if we apply this rule to this situation, on the whole, we'll get um, uh, results that promote innovation. Whereas in the patent office, it's uh, better suited for more open-ended policy engagement. And the reason for that is courts, uh, they, they just resolve specific cases before them. They're resolving the dispute that the parties are raising on the record that the parties are uh, presenting. They're not really good at making large social judgments about, hey, is this good for innovation? Is this good for society or not? Whereas administrative agencies, we normally think of, of as being better suited. They're more responsive uh, to the political branches, um, Congress who gives them authority and the executive who oversees them. Uh, they uh, have tools to get kind of widespread public opinion. They can hold hearings. They can uh, get expert uh, decisions beyond the specific case. And although the patent office really hasn't engaged much with patent policy, with the underlying goal of promoting innovation between it and the courts, it's better suited to it, has uh, more tools to do so. Okay, and determinations as to the time of the invention or filing, what's what's this? Yeah, so at the, uh, uh, patent law judges a lot of things be, uh, as of the time of the invention or now, uh, for, for reasons that have to do with the statute, as of the time of the filing of the patent application. And the reason for that is things are changing quickly. And if we ask, you know, five years later when a case is in litigation, um, was this, uh, would this have been seemed obvious to someone? Uh, it might seem very obvious now, 
because technologies change so quickly. Whereas five years ago, when this uh, invention was made, this was a groundbreaking uh, 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 change. This was something that really opened up a, a new field. And so the suggestion in the paper is, again, we can't avoid making judgments as of the time of the filing. Because if we did, if we, if we judge, just judge things today at the time the decision maker is making the decision, that jo those judgments are going to reflect all the changes in technology that have happened in the intervening years. But how we judge things as of the time of the filing um, uh, can vary. So, uh, for example, we can ask more open-ended, again, a lot of this is open-ended versus uh, uh, constrained questions. We can ask more open-ended questions that say, what was the state of this field of technology at the time of the invention? And in that type of situation, it requires a lot more of a historical reconstruction of what was going on in the, uh, in the area of technology. And that's problematic the further we get away from the time of uh, the invention, because we're going to have problems just getting the evidence, just reconstructing that historical evidence. And we're going to have problems with hindsight bias. That is, people's judgment of what was known or uh, capable then is influenced by their no knowledge of subsequent technology. Uh, or we can be a little more constrained. So if we, look, if we keep our inquiries more focused on the patent document, that patent document is, is, uh, has remained static from the time of uh, filing until the time today. And so can provide us a little more objective evaluation of what was going on at the time of the invention. And again, the suggestion is because patent prosecution, obtaining the patent from the patent office, happens closer to the time of the invention, things that require a judgment, a re historical reconstruction of the state of the technology are re more reliable then than say patent litigation, which tends to happen 10, 12 years after the invention and patent litigation in the courts should stay closer to just looking at the patent document, which really hasn't changed over time, rather than trying to reconstruct what was going on in the technological field. Yeah, I really can't imagine going back 10 years and thinking about how I thought back then. Um, but your next distinction is simplicity versus nuance. Um, what, what's this all about? So the patent office uh, has to evaluate a large number of applications quickly. And so when I'm talking about simplicity and nuance here, I'm not so much talking about um, uh, the relationship to the underlying technology or invention or anything like that. I'm really talking about how quickly you can make your decision. Uh, the patent office needs tools for quick decisions. Again, patent examiners only get about 18 hours of uh, uh, time to evaluate these. And so they need, to, they need uh, doctrines that allow for quick ju uh, judgment without a large amount of evidentiary uh, undertaking, without a large amount of investigation, that kind of thing. And so we can accept kind of uh, uh, less uh, er accurate results if we can get quick decisions from the patent office, because very few patents actually matter. Uh, only a small percentage of patents are ever litigated or used in another way. So even if we're not getting optimal outcomes from, from the patent office because we're encouraging quick decisions, uh, not a, lo a lot of times that won't matter because the patent will just never will become of issue after it uh, after the patent uh, patent office grants. It. By contrast, when we're looking at courts, well, those are the patents that matter. Those are the patents that have litigated. So it becomes much more important to get the right result, the accurate outcome, because we know that the accurate outcome will affect 
the real world. Uh, and also courts have more time. Uh, uh, we have fewer cases that they have more time to resolve. Judges, again, are spending at least double the time of patent examiners uh, on patent cases. And in litigation, the parties have uh, much more of a role in kind of developing the evidence and doing the work. So the patent office kind of needs quick heuristics that it can apply, uh, and we're probably willing to accept some level of inaccuracy there to get that kind of a quick decision-making because the inaccuracy often won't matter because the patent will never be issued. Whereas in litigation, uh, we, we can have more fact-intensive, more uh, uh, work-intensive doctrines that help promote getting a more accurate outcome. Okay, and the last distinction, rules versus standards? Yeah, so rules versus standards is a common way of uh, talking about legal design, of uh, designing legal rules. Uh, the idea is rules are more hard and fast. Uh, they, they're likely to lead to errors in individual cases, but they promote certainty, predictability, um, the ease of application. And so therefore, um, uh, at, at a wholesale level, we think ultimately are socially optimal. Whereas standards uh, encourage case-by-case uh, -case inquiry, they're better for tailoring the outcomes to the uh, uh, facts of specific cases and therefore can lead to more just results in any particular case. But they often require more information, they're less predictable, they can raise costs, decrease certainty, that kind of thing. And so rules versus standards is a classic trade-off in legal design, though I don't think it really maps on clearly here uh, uh, to decouple patent law between, say, the patent office and the courts. And the reason for that is uh, uh, rules and standards can differ in terms of the engagement they require with uh, or complexity they introduce. So the more that a standard, an open-ended test that considers a lot of factors, the more that that requires more engagement with the technical areas, uh, the better suited that's going to be for the patent office than for the courts. But on the other hand, the more it requires kind of a, a, a wide variety of legal factors and that kind of thing, the better suited it's going to be for the courts than the patent office. And also, the, I mean, we think the courts have a little more time to engage with this. So they might be, uh, so standards, which are more open-ended, might be better for them. But then on the other hand, we think certainty and predictability are very important once patents have been issued. Because people should have reliance interests, they've relied on having patent rights. Uh, they want to be, they need to know that those that uh, how to plan accordingly and that kind of thing. So that would seem to favor rules in litigation. So at the end of the day, I just don't think we can make a hard and fast judgment that rules are better for litigation, standards are better for the patent office, or vice versa. I think it really just depends on the content and the specific doctrine uh, under consideration. Okay. So you gave us two examples of decoupled patent law, claim construction and obviousness. How can these function? Yeah, so I think this gives a good opportunity to kind of see on the ground what I mean by decoupled patent law. So let's say claim construction. Claim construction, uh, uh, you, at the end of a patent, you have these short uh, paragraphs uh, that define the patentee's legal rights. And the patentee basically has to say, this is my invention to which I claim a right to exclude in this short paragraph um, of information. And one of the things that courts have to do or adjudicators have to do is try to interpret what those claims mean because there's all inevitably a dispute about words and like any other area of written documents, whether it's statutory, whether it's contracts, 
there becomes issues of interpretation. How do we understand the words being used in this document? And so we've kind of seen two approaches uh, over the years uh, in the Federal Circuit to how to do so. And so one is uh, based on um, kind of emphasizing more the usage of the term in uh, the, the scientific field in general, the technical field in general. And it looks more to what we'll say external sources, um, things like how it was being used in treatises, how it was being used in the field generally, what do experts say the meaning was. The other approach focuses more on the patent document and looks more to the patent document rather than the general usage in the technical field as providing the context by which we can kind of understand these claims in the patent. And it really kind of comp compares how the term is being used in the patent claim to how it's being used elsewhere in the patent document. And it really treats general usage in the technical field as secondary. And what I'd suggest is that um, uh, uh, the more the focus more on the usage in the general field of the invention, the technical field, is better for the patent office, and the focus on the usage in the uh, patent document itself is better for the courts. And the reason for that is the patent office, uh, the people there are people who are familiar with the field, the technical field, so they uh, will have a better understanding of the underlying terminology. Uh, they're closer in time to uh, the time of the invention, so they'll have a better understanding or easier access to what the meaning was at the time. Uh, the, uh, it allows them to use their own background knowledge and therefore make a quicker decision than kind of parsing through the legal document. By contrast, focusing more on the patent itself is better for litigation. It makes uh, claim construction more like any other form of document interpretation that judges are familiar with. They don't have to get into the details of the uh, uh, technical field as much. Um, uh, it, it might require a little more time to parse through the legal document, and they have that uh, a greater amount of time. And by focusing more on the legal document, we're minimizing the need to kind of reconstruct what was going on at the time of the invention. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. And obviousness? So obviousness, we've seen uh, a switch uh, among the case law. So up until 2007, the Federal Circuit used an approach that was called teaching suggestion or motivation to combine. So a common problem in obviousness, the idea that the invention was too trivial to be worth patent protection, is that all of the features of the invention existed already. It's just they hadn't, hadn't been put together before. They hadn't been combined. And so the question is, would it have been obvious? Would it have been apparent to someone to combine them? And prior to uh, 2007, the Federal Circuit had, a, had had an approach called the teaching suggestion or motivation to combine approach. And what that basically said, at its most extreme form at least, was you have to point, be able to point to something in a specific written document that would have given a, uh, uh, an inventor a reason to kind of put together these prior features uh, in the field, something that would have suggested it would work and that there'd be a reason to combine features that hadn't been combined before. And in 2007, the Supreme Court uh, had a decision called KSR where it rejected that. And it said, no, you don't have to just point to something specific that would have caused someone to want to combine these. You can rely on more of a common sense that this would have been worth, worth trying. You can re rely more on market demand on uh, kind of the background knowledge of a person of skill in the art. It's a much more open-ended inquiry uh, to say, 
um, uh, that someone would have a reason to put these features uh, together. And what I'd suggest is that that mo more open-ended inquiry is more appropriate for the patent office. And the reason for that is uh, uh, that it's much more technical. It requires more engagement with the technology, with the field of invention, a greater understanding of kind of what was going on in the field and what someone in the field would know how to do and would be uh, would think to do. And that's much better suited for the more scientifically oriented decision makers uh, in the patent office. And it also, uh, it's a more, uh, it's a less predictable test. It doesn't provide the level of predictability we might want for issued patents. Whereas the teaching suggestion motivation to combine test, it's much more uh, textually based, document based. Again, it, it requires an act of document interpretation, looking through the prior documents to see what they teach. That's closer to what judges do uh, in other areas of law. It requires less direct engagement with the technical uh, area. It requires more reliance on static written documents rather than uh, having to kind of reconstruct a uh, historical situation um, uh, that might be 10, 12 years in the past. And so on the whole, it's probably better for litigation. And I, again, in the paper, I'm not suggesting that these are the ideal tests for these different areas. I'm just suggesting these are ways that we could apply different standards in, uh, uh, patent, in obtaining patents and in uh, enforcing patents in a way that would be uh, workable and, and could really work in the real world. Where are the potential errors of implementing a decoupled patent law system? Um, and where would you kind of caution uh, a little hesitance? I mean, I think the biggest problem here is that there's a sense of it's going to really increase uncertainty or there's something fundamentally wrong. If, uh, uh, if we're asking the same questions in the patent office in the courts, is this patent obvious? That is, is it uh, too trivial in order to warrant patent protection? That's the same Based at a high level, that's the same question we're asking in the patent office and the courts. And I think what I'm suggesting is that high level question remains the same, but how we implement it uh, might be different if we can implement it in a way better suited for the various decision makers in the various contexts. And I think the problem with that, um, I think there's two primary uh, uh, problems or potential uh, pitfalls here. One is there just seems something wrong. It just uh, uh, goes against the way people normally think things should be done, that the same statutory uh, test, obviousness, could be applied differently in two different situations. And so you could have a situation in which patent rights kind of shift in terms of uh, whether, they're, whether they're valid, their scope, et cetera, between these different forms. And I consider that in the paper. I think it's potentially problematic. But as long as it's easier to get a patent, um, sorry, it's easier to retain a patent after it's been issued than it is to get the patent. As long as we, we make it, uh, once a patent's issued, it's easier to keep. I think that minimizes a lot of the current concerns with kind of reliance interests developing around uh, issued patents and the concerns with shifting patent rights. And then the other thing is, I think this is just a, a major change to the patent system. It's very different than the way we have uh, done it in the past, where we've applied kind of, we've said that the courts and the patent office have to apply the exact same test in the exact same way. And patent rights have serious economic consequences. And anytime you kind of uh, uh, tinker with, with, with something with serious economic consequences, 
uh, we could have unexpected uh, downsides, uh, and, and, and perhaps the problems I've identified that justify coupled patent law just aren't worth the risk of these potential downsides of, of um, interfering with the way the economies worked, uh, at least with regards to patent rights, for hundreds of years. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm cognizant of that, and I, I think that's a, a fair uh, criticism. I think what the paper's really suggesting is this is just something we should consider. We don't necessarily need to wholesale change patent law in every area of doctrine or uh, differ in uh, the legal standards we apply in every area of doctrine. We just need to consider it possible as a, as a possibility and as a way to address some of the problems we have um, in kind of designing uh, some of the uh, patent law issues and some of the dissatisfaction we have. And maybe we only do it in one doctrine or two doctrines where we're really having trouble getting an optimal uh, kind of legal test. Uh, and then we see how it goes, and from there we, we, we expand it. Maybe we, we take a more limited approach. Yeah, that seems like a workable solution to beta test it and, um, and see how it works in a certain area first. Okay, let's, um, we're going to wrap up here. I want to give you the mic. Uh, tell us something we need to know. Uh, fill us in with what's going on in, in your work, in your life. Uh, what, what can our listeners learn in this closing segment? Yeah, I think one of the things, uh, and you see that in this paper and then some of the other work I'm doing that I'm really interested in, is this idea that patent law um, can and should be more dynamic than it is. Our patent system largely was the same from, say, 1836 till at least the American Events Act of 2011. And most of our substantive uh, legal doctrines for when you get a patent and when you keep a patent have been pretty much the same for 100 plus years. And it's not clear to me that that makes a lot of sense uh, because change, times change, technology changes, uh, and patent law is ultimately a, a tool of social welfare. We're trying to uh, enhance uh, our, our, our economy, enhance people's lives through patent law. And so therefore, I think uh, one of my themes I'm working on is patent law should be more dynamic than it is and that Congress actually has significant power kind of shift patent law as uh, time, time demands. And, but we see resistance from that largely within the patent community. And I think what the patent community is really doing is mistaking the, the way patent law has been for the way patent law has to be. It's mistaking kind of prior policy choices by prior Congresses for some sort of inherent or nece necessary uh, feature of the patent system. And so some of the work I'm doing now is trying to encourage uh, people to think of this differently, to think of it as a, a public policy tool that can kind of be shifted to changing needs uh, and is kind of within uh, Congress's power to control. So once again, I want to thank Professor Riley for joining me today. Um, this was our first time on Skype, so I think it went really well from my end, and I hope to do that again with uh, professors and thinkers across the country. Um, next week, we're going to be back here at Notre Dame. Uh, we've got Professor John Robinson, who is going to be talking about death and dying. So uh, look forward to that one. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye.